Man, I'm so excited to be here. I feel very connected to you guys. Uh, they mentioned a few of them. They mentioned a few of them. One you may not know, when I was a kid, I actually dreamed of being an OSU cowboy. Did you know that? Well, my mom, that was a nightmare, unfortunately. And so she only sent my ACT scores to the University of Oklahoma. So there you go. That's how I got there. But I was Oklahoma State born, sooner bred, but when I die, Red Raider Red. Am I right? <laughs> Everyone else hates me. There we go. We got that out of the way. Really how I'm connected to you guys is 15 years ago, I was sitting in the same seats you guys are sitting in, coming to my first SMC. Uh, and, and really, I hope, I hope that this SMC has the impact on you that it had on me. It was a pivotal moment in my life when it came to what I thought about God. And so I'm excited for each of you to get the opportunity to experience that as well. Well, like I said, it's been 15 years. And since then, a lot's changed. Uh, I am now a husband to my beautiful wife, Natalie. Uh, I have kids. I'm a dad. And I'm a dad to young kids. And being a dad to young kids has actually shown me or kind of manifested something that was already in me. I'm a pretty safe person, right? I'm seatbelts, helmets. I can geek out on alarm systems. Like I didn't ride a roller coaster until I was 25 years old. Like I like safety. Well, now I have kids and it's just manifested upon them. Like I want them to be really safe. I think I'm the only parent left in the world that still sits in the playground at Chick-fil-A. It's like the safest place in the world. And I'm just sitting in there like they ain't getting my kids. No shit. Most parents just drop their kids off and leave Chick-fil-A. Like, I'm just in there like, no way. They're in those urinated tubes. Something's going to go wrong. I'm going to stop it. It's my authority. And I don't, just, and I don't need any thank yous, okay? It's my pleasure. That's what I do. Uh, and so it's no big deal. It's no big deal. But I'm a safe guy. I really am. I, I love safety. And because of that, there was this one instance that really, really just boiled up this safety part of me at one point in my life. I'll never forget it. It was when me and my wife took our kids down for a holiday to, to see her family. And her brothers and sisters, they have tons of kids. Like, like, there's like 12 nieces and nephews, and my kids are on the younger end. And so here we are at this event, and I don't remember what they were playing, football, freeze tag, something like that. And all of a sudden, uh, one of the kids falls down, one of my kids, and I hear somebody yell out, dog pile! Now, I know what you might be thinking. Are we still playing that game? Like, is that, is that still a thing? Like, we got, like, VR, cars that drive themselves. We're sending people to space, and kids are still like, I just want to jump on someone. Like, why is that still happening? It's still happening. Dogpile's a thing. And there's some unfortunate components about dogpile, just so you know. Maybe you've never thought about it. Uh, one of the most unfortunate components of dogpile is the kid who uh, is at the bottom and takes the full force of the dogpile, he never wanted to play dogpile. Like, he didn't even want to play. And now he's going to get the brunt force of it. No one trips and they're like, ooh, dogpile. Like that doesn't happen. There's some Enneagram 7 that sees it and they're like, jump on that kid. Let's go. And they just pile upon it. Well, normally a normal dog pile, I got no problem with. But when your kid is at the bottom, when your kid is at the bottom, it's a whole new ball game. Because my kids were the smallest. So I'm counting the pounds of the kids that are jumping on my kids. 20 pounds, 40 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds. It's piling up on my kids and I'm watching it happen. I'm looking around for parents. Like somebody's got to see this and jump in. They're doing nothing. Well, here I am. I'm here to save the day. I just jump in there. I just start throwing kids, like grabbing kids, throwing them. That is actually weirdly satisfying. I'm grabbing my nieces and nephews and just chunking them as far as I can. Probably more dangerous than the dog pile, to be honest. Uh, but it didn't matter. Because what was happening there is I was staring at this dog pile. Is the thing that I loved the most. The thing that I love the most was being buried. 
being buried. The second unfortunate component of dogpile is the only one that can usually stop a dogpile is the person at the bottom of the pile. They have to yell, I can't breathe. But you can't breathe, so how can you, I can't breathe. That's the other unfortunate component. That's my kid. The thing I love is being buried. Hey, the reason I'm up here tonight with you guys is because the thing I love is being buried. And I'm not talking about my kids underneath a dog pile. You know I can handle those on my own. But someone said it way better than me. I read a book in college called The Knowledge of the Holy. And there was a quote from the man who wrote it. His name was A.W. Tozer. And he said this. He said, the idea of the true God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notion and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. What Tozer is saying is that the true God, the true idea of God is being buried. Under what? He says conventional religious notion. Basically, he means he's being buried under surface level, shallow, counterfeit ideas of who God is. And God is being buried. Buried so much that we don't even know, many of us, who the true God really is anymore. Now we just have this counterfeit version of him. And let me tell you something. You guys are really good at identifying counterfeits. You know when you're being fed something shallow, surface level, or counterfeit. And because of that, the response to God on the college campus, there's three attitudes I really see. One, people ignore God. Like they're ignoring the things that have to do anything with God. They're not running to those things. Then they become ignorant of God. Like no one talks about who God is anymore. There's no discussions about him. No one really knows much about him. They ignore, they become ignorant, and then ultimately you live a life independent of God. Many college students are just living a life as though God doesn't exist. Sure, if you asked them, they would say, yeah, most of them, yeah, yeah, he does. But they're living a life as though he doesn't. Because the true God has been buried, and they don't, you don't want the counterfeit. Well, the problem is, when you try to bury God, you run into a problem. Like, you want to bury him. And anytime, just so you know, you bury God, you, you try to get rid of him. Uh, anytime you try to do that, what happens is, this is the way Blaise Pascal said it. He said it this way. He said, inside of every man, there's a God-shaped vacuum. Or I'll say it exactly like he said it. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man. Here's what goes wrong is that you're trying to ignore God, but Pascal says, problem is, you've got this vacuum in your heart that's shaped like God, and it's pulling, and it's sucking, but since you're ignoring God, you're beginning to try to fill it with other things. It's a vacuum. That's what it does, and you try to plug it with anything, and anytime we try to plug this vacuum, this thing in our heart that's searching for some sort of satisfaction with something else, the Bible has a name for that. It's called idols, idols. And that's what we try to do. Since we don't want this counterfeit version of God, we start trying to fill this vacuum with something else. I'll give you the big three. Number one, yourself. I'm just going to be about me, egocentric, self-centered. I'm going to do what makes me happy. And we try to fit it in there, but it doesn't quite fit. Second one is stuff. I mean, I'm going to achieve. I'm going to gain success. I'm going to get wealth and I'm going to buy stuff and that'll do it doesn't fit. The third one, third big one is sex. 
Him or her, having him or her, or doing that thing or watching this, like that's really what's going to satisfy. And it doesn't fit. Like we try to plug it with other things, but for some reason it will not fit. Why doesn't it fit? Why do these things that you go to so often, these idols, not fit into this vacuum? I'll tell you why they'll never fit. Isaiah 42.8, it will tell us why it doesn't fit. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to to idols. God, from his grace, is not going to allow those things that you're trying to fit in the God-shaped vacuum to fit. There's only one thing that fits, and that's the true God. But we have a problem. The true God has been buried. How do you follow? How do you follow a true God if the true God's been buried? I'll tell you how. You can't. You can't follow a counterfeit God. It doesn't fit. The only way you can follow the true God is to do what Tozer said with some intelligence and some vigor. You have to unearth and expose. Bring back to light the true God. But how do you do that? That is why I'm so excited about the passage we're about to jump into. Because we are going to learn how to do just that. How can we, SMC, expose the true God in our own lives? We're going to learn three ways we can do that from a passage in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts uh, 17. Uh, And just so y'all know, this is an amazing passage. Like whether you say, hey man, I think the Bible's boring, or you're on the other end of the spectrum and you love God's word, like regardless, this one right here, if we could fast forward it and play it today, it'd have 50 million views on YouTube. Like it is, it is that awesome of a story. I'll give you a little context and then we'll jump into our actual passage. You've got this guy named Paul, okay? And Paul lands in the city, Athens. And so Paul was a great man. He was a great man of faith, Uh, probably the greatest man of faith alive at that time when it came to representing God, the true God. Well, Paul gets dropped into the city of Athens, which is actually one of the most intellectual cities, many many scholars argue, of all time. So you've got the greatest man of faith coming up against the greatest intellectual city of all time. They are about to clash. It would be like if we could find the greatest man of faith now and drop him in the most liberal, uh, like highest intellect university, and let them square off. We put it on YouTube. We'd all watch it. That's what's happening right here in the first century. Paul in Athens. So Paul comes to Athens. He gets dropped off there. He's waiting on his buddies, Silas and uh, Timothy, to join him. And as he's waiting, he just looks around. And you guys have heard the city Athens, right? Emperor's New Groove. Is is that above past y'all? Anyone? Emperor's New Groove still? A few of you? A few Disney Plus. Disney Plus is reviving. I like it. Uh, He's in this city of Athens. And uh, Athens is, is this phenomenal city. Uh, people still visit it today, but, but it's full of all these amazing pieces of architecture, and also what the Bible says is it's full of idols. In fact, Athens was the city of gods. One man said it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. Paul gets dropped off here, but Paul does not start sightseeing. He looks around at these idols, and he's provoked. He is angry. He's not angry because of the structure or the the design. He's angry because of Isaiah 42, 8, that the glory of God is, is being stolen. It's trying to be stolen from these idols. He's frustrated, so he does everything in his power to do what he always does. 
He wants to tell them about the true God. And so he starts going through the town. He goes to the synagogue. He tells them about the true God. He goes to the marketplace. He tells them about the true God. He eventually rolls up on some philosophy guys, like two of the leading philosophies of the time, a group called the Epicureans and a group called the Stoics. And he gets to reasoning with them. And just so you know, reasoning is different than preaching. This is preaching where only I get to talk. But reasoning is where he goes back and forth. These men were sharp, but Paul was also incredibly sharp and incredibly intellectual. And so they're going back and forth. Now, the Epicureans, they're like your, uh, your therapist mindset. Like their philosophy on life is it's about pleasure to simplify it. Like, like do you, be happy, do what makes you happy. They believed in gods, but they thought they were so distant that you just kind of lived your life the way you wanted to live your life. Does that sound familiar? We still have that today, right? My fraternity, that was our philosophy. We were Epicureans. They were Greeks, we were Greeks. I guess that's why it connects. And there were Stoics over here. Now, the Stoics were much more about virtue. They said, hey, you're supposed to do what's right. I had a friend in the ROTC. He was more about virtue. It wasn't just about, they were called pantheists. They believed in all kinds of gods. So this was a god, that was a god, everything was a god. And so you treated everything with respect and it was about the common good of everyone. And that's another group of people that exists. And one man said that actually this passage in the Bible is probably out of all passages in the Bible, one that connects the most to the culture we live in today. And I think it very much is going to connect with you guys and the culture you guys exist in on your college campus. So Paul's telling these two groups of guys, their philosophy, he's saying, hey, guys, here's the true God. He baffles these guys. Like, like this, this text literally says all people do in Athens is sit and talk about new teachings all day. But, but Paul baffles these guys. They don't know what to do with them. Some are like, dude, this guy's kind of crazy. The other ones are like, well, actually, I kind of like what he's saying. But regardless, what he was saying was so controversial to, this, to Athens, they're like, you have to go and we need you to go speak to the Areopagus. The Areopagus were already in the most intellectual city of all time. The Areopagus was this big block of stone in the center of Athens with this uh, little building on top where 30 of the most intellectual men who were elected in by the city stood. So not only are we in Athens, but Paul is now walking up to the most intellectual peak of Athens to make his case about the God whom these people have buried. He's going to expose the true God. And what Paul says to these men is the same thing I think if he stood on this stage, he would say to us today. Let's jump into it. Paul in the Areopagus, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, these men says this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you want to know the true God, here's the first point that Paul's going to make. You have to know God is. If you want to know the true God, first point is you just have to know God is. Where do we see that in here? He says, men, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He looks around, he's like, I see it. You've got gods everywhere. You're clearly religious. It's obvious you believe that God is. And really, if, if we were in a different time period, we could just breeze by this point because all these men would have been like, yeah, God is. Okay, next point. But not today. We can't breeze by this point today because we no longer can assume that God is. You see, if you were to take Paul 
and you were to drop him into one of these prestigious intellectual schools today, you know, the Yales, the Harvards, the Princetons, the Arkansas, like those kind of campuses, And he stands before these, these professors and he says, hey, hey, professors, I want to tell you about the true God. I think we can all assume God is, right? <laughs> Good one, Paul. No, we can't assume that today. But here's the deal. If you took one of those professors and you brought him back to one of the most intellectual cities of all time with the most intellectual men of all time, and you put him before those men, and he started off his speech like this, men of Athens, I think we can all agree, God isn't. <laughs> oh, he's serious. What's that? An atheist? He would have been laughed out of the Areopagus. In fact, for most of human history, if you were to say God isn't, you would be the one being laughed at. Because most of human history assumed God, that he is. Even the Bible assumes God. Have you ever wondered, hey, why doesn't the Bible make an argument for God's existence? It didn't have to. No one thought like that. Everyone just assumed God is. Now, there are a couple of places, a couple of points you can point to that you could probably think this is why they assumed it. One of my favorites is Hebrews 3, 4. Hebrews 3, 4. Oh, it's right here. It's great. For every house is built by someone. It's a cool verse. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, I've gone into many people's houses who have uh, bought new houses, and they tell me about the builders, but there was one that was very unique. I walk into my friend's house. I, I like the house. I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, you built this. Wow, who built this? Oh, Brent. You are never going to believe it. No one built it. Actually, what we did is we just laid lumber, electrical, piping, plumbing, and put a stick of dynamite by it, lit that baby on fire, and boom, boom, house. That's crazy. That's exactly what they would have thought of someone saying, God isn't. Oh, you look around you and you see this creation, this form, this design, and you would assume God isn't? That it just exploded and appeared? That's crazy. Just as you wouldn't do that with a house. You shouldn't do that as you look at the effect here. If you have an effect, you have a cause. But not only that, it's a design, it's an intelligent design, right? Like there's intelligence behind it. Darwin himself, when he came across the human eye, he said this, he said it was, it's, it was absurd to propose that the human eye evolved from spontaneous mutation or natural selection. Even Darwin came up against intelligence and was like, you'd be crazy to think that that just happened. No, that was design, which is why uh, Psalm 94, 9 says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Intelligence creates intelligence. So they assumed God is. And in the same way, Paul says, if you're ever going to expose the true God, the starting point is at least this. You have to know God is. In fact, Einstein, the great theologian, he says this, anyone who didn't believe in a cosmic power is a fool. He wasn't a great theologian, by the way. Don't see him writing that down. Oh my gosh, a theologian. I didn't even know. No. But we can never know him. Right that you'd be a fool not to believe in a cosmic power. Wrong that we can never know him. In fact, we can know him. And that's going to be Paul's next point. He's about to move into it, and here's what he says. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The second point is this. You can't just know God is. Paul says that's your starting point. But second, you've got to know, if you want to know the true God, you've got to know who God is. Who God is. It's not enough just to know what God exists. You got to know his character. You got to know about him. Paul was walking around the city. He saw all these gods, right? Xerxes, Hercules, Athena, you know, all these different gods. And then he comes across this one, and it, many of them actually, and it says, to the unknown God. Huh, what happened there? Well, what happened was 500 years earlier, there was a plague in Athens, and they didn't know what to do about it. So they got this guy, Epimenides. And they said, Epimenides, solve our problem. He says, I got the perfect solution. What we'll do is we'll put a bunch of white and black sheep at the top of the hill of the Areopagus. We'll let them go. And then whichever gods they die in front of, let's sacrifice them to those gods. And then that way we can appease the God that's frustrated with us. And that's probably why we have the plague. It'll take care of everything. He has two problems that he runs into. Number one, the gods are fake, so they can't control sheep. Number two, the sheep are real, and they do whatever the heck they want. So they let these sheep go. And sheep do what sheep do. You guys know what sheep do, right? No, none of us know what sheep do. They do a lot. They just start running everywhere, laying down everywhere. So people run around, I don't know, with you know, knives ready to sacrifice this thing. Well, some stop in front of gods, but then they get into a big problem. A lot are stopping in front of no gods. Like, what do we do? Well, obviously, we didn't identify some gods that exist, so let's just create some new ones. Just call them the unknown god. Build another altar. We don't care. There you go. Now you got the unknown god. Paul comes in. He's like, okay, 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 okay. You've got one god here that you call the unknown god. I can work with that. This God you call unknown, that's the one I want to tell you about. Because the one you don't know is the true one. He's the true one. And I want to tell you the character about the true one. A.W. Tozer says this when it comes to how we think about God and who he is. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because your perception of God shapes you more than anything else in your life. And you may be like, no, I'm an atheist. That's not true. I'd say even if you don't believe in God, that belief of not, of, God, of not believing in God shapes you more than anything else in your life, whether good or bad. And Paul knows that, which is why he knows it's so important that these men not only believe God is, they know who he is. So he starts to tell them. He's like, man, you men need to know who this true God is. And I just want to share with you some of the character qualities that Paul gives, because this is huge. We have to have an accurate understanding of who God is. We cannot be ignorant of this stuff. It impacts you more than you know. So he starts to tell him, verse 24, this God is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. Temples made by man. You see, they made their gods, right? They created them themselves. They had these temples and these gods that they constructed. Paul says, no. No, 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 no. You don't create God. God creates you. God is creator. That's the true God. I get into these situations, you know, every once in a while, but my most recent one was last spring. And um, 
a buddy invited me and he invited me to uh, lunch because he wanted to talk to me about something. And so, you know, here we are, we come to lunch and, um, and I sit across from him and I can tell he has some concern. And, and so he begins to, to share his concern. And he says, hey, um, Brent, what, uh, here's my concern, what happens um, to the kid on the other side of the country uh, or the other side of the world who never hears about God? I bet you've thought that question before. Most college students think about that question. Here's what I said. Um, well, what's the kid's name? Uh, uh, I don't know. Oh. Well, where does he live? No idea. Huh. You know his mom's name? No. What color is his hair at least? No. Are you going to go to this place and do something about it? Mm -mm. Okay, so let me get this straight. The God you've created in this hypothetical situation leaves kids nameless on the other side of the earth and cares nothing about them. Is that correct? Yeah. That sounds like a terrible God. And if that's who God was, that would be very terrible. Let me tell you about my God, the true God. I wasn't as loud at when I was, was much more compassionate then. You're like, wow, you this is kind of mean. No, no, no. Emphasize a little bit. Let me tell you about my God. My God is the creator God. My God knit that kid together in his mother's womb, and my God knows your hypothetical kid by name. And my God knows his mother's name. And my God not only knows the color of his hair, but he knows every single number of hairs on his head. And let me tell you another characteristic. My God is everywhere, so he's not sitting here at a lunch shop in Lubbock talking about what's God doing. He's there. And my God desires that all people come to know him. I don't want to believe in your God. I want to believe in mine. He's the creator God. You see how it shapes the way you think when you think about God accurately? That's the true God. And that's just one characteristic. Paul gives more. He goes on in verse 25. Yeah, he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything in it. These people actually had this practice. This practice still goes on today, uh, where they would offer food sacrifices uh, to the temples. And so they would show up before these gods, they would put down a plate of food, and then they would leave, and then the gods would eat the food. But you remember the sheep, right? Gods aren't real. So the temples came, temple people would come out, eat it, and then leave the empty bowl. It was first century Uber Eats. That's all we had going on here. <laughs> they were just eating it and leaving it there. Paul says, my God doesn't need you to feed him. Because not only is my God creator, but he's also the sustainer. You can keep your food to yourself. He does not need your food. In fact, the only reason you can walk, create the food, bring it to him, and sacrifice it to idols is because my God sustains your life and allows you to live another day. You know, I don't think we really think about the sustainer God, this character quality of God very often, if ever. I do think creator God, we do think of as him as creator. 
Like when we're overlooking mountains or, or something like that and we see some beautiful thing, like it's normal to be like, wow, someone had to have made this. This is amazing. But the sustainer, not so much. But for me, in a very real way, I had to come to grips with God as sustainer this last year. You see, I told you I'm a dad of young kids, okay? And so I had my first kid six years ago, and it was a boy, and his name was Levi. And when I had the boy, man, whoo, ah, you know, I went back into the room. No one saw me. Of course, I was like, hey, either would be fine. But I get back in the room, and I'm just like, ah, 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 yes, did it. Then I have another one. Guess what? Boy. Oh, yeah, we're producing boys, baby. Number three, another boy. My wife was alive 2,000 years ago. She'd be like the wife of the golden womb. She's just pumping out kings, you know? It's amazing. But if anyone knows me, anyone who knew me closely, after that third boy, they knew what I really wanted. That there was a part of me that really yearned for the father-daughter relationship. So we had one more kid. We got pregnant. I didn't even want to find out the gender. We waited until the delivery to find out the gender. Because I just wanted to hold on to the possibility. Like, I just, like, it's definitely a boy, but I just want to live with the possibility of a girl for as long as possible. So we get there the day of, and they're like, hey, Dad, you're going to be the one who tells us what it is. And we're doing a C-section, so it's a little different. There's like a big curtain, it's surgery. So I'm sitting behind the curtain, and the doctor's like, hey, when the baby comes up, Dad, I want you to stand, and I want you to make the announcement, because none of the doctors know either. Everyone's excited. And so the baby comes out, and I stand up, and I look, and I say, oh, it's, I don't know, <laughs> I freaked. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was gooey, things were swollen, I was just like, I can't make this call. It's like Super Bowl goal line call. Like, I don't know. You can't put this pressure on me. The doctor eventually has to be like, Dad, it's a girl. And I was like, yes. I it's a girl. I sit back down. I'm looking at my wife. We're like, shocked. like, it's a girl. They bring her. Her name's Josie. They bring her over. They place her on this table. They start working on her. I'm talking to my wife. Like, God, you created a girl. Here she is. And now I've met her. But then more doctors come in. And more doctors come in. Before I know it, there's like nine doctors around my baby, and that doesn't happen. And then they roll Josie off. They say, hey, we're going to have to take her actually to the NICU. Um, she's having a hard time breathing. And so she leaves, and me and my wife, you know, she get back from surgery. We're sitting in the room, and I'm pacing back and forth. It's been an hour, and the doctor comes in. And the first thing he says to me is he says, are you the father? I say, Yes. He goes, I'm going to need you to have a seat. Sit. Your daughter's very sick. We're not sure if it's the heart. We have cardiologist team, cardio team coming. It may be a heart transplant. We're not sure if it's the lungs, but it's serious, and you've got a long road ahead of you. Five hours later, they say, hey, you can come up and you can see your baby. And we come up to this. Here I am, staring at the girl that I asked God to give me, and he gave her to me. 
but I didn't need creator God right now. I needed a God who could sustain. I needed one more breath and then another breath. Come on, God, one more breath and then another breath. And this is an extreme circumstance that makes sense that she would need another breath. But just so you know, every breath you've taken since you've been here and since you've been born comes from God. He sustains you too. Every moment you get another second on this earth comes from this character quality of God. He sustains your life. He sustains all these idol-making men in the Areopagus' life. And he's still sustaining my daughter's life. This is her now. <laughs> and it snowed in Lubbock the other day and she put her snowsuit on. I miss this. It's amazing. He's the sustainer. He's the only reason she gets another breath. He's the only reason you get another breath. Imagine what that would do to your life if you begin to recognize that the only reason you get another breath is because of this true God. I think we would recognize him a little more, but that's not even the last characteristic Paul gives. He gives one more to these men. He says this in verse uh, 26. It says, and he he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He says he's the determiner. God's the determiner. And this would be a gut punch to the Greeks because they just got sacked by the Romans. And so basically Paul says, hey, every world empire transition, God determined it. Like actually all of these things playing out on a major scale, God determined it. And so it should actually bring hope to someone to know like this terrible circumstance, God's actually in control. Uh, but it probably didn't for these men at the time. It's probably a little bit of a gut punch. But God, what he wants them to know is he's the determiner. And I think this is the reason why Paul, if you were to go back a chapter before this, that Paul was in Philippi, he gets the crap beat out of him, put into prison. And then through a miracle, God gets him out of prison. And then he goes to Thessalonica and all these people who want to beat him up, chase him to Thessalonica. So then he flees Thessalonica and goes to a city called Berea. And they follow him to Berea. And eventually he's like, I got to go to Athens. And he leaves Timothy and uh, Silas behind and flees to Athens to get away from the persecution. Well, what in the world? would give a man who's been through that the audacity, the courage to stand before the most intellectual group of people maybe on the planet at the time and say, hey, here's the true God. Only a man who knows the true God as the determiner. You see, for Paul, there was never a moment where he was that didn't have a purpose for why he was there because God gave him one. It was never an accident. It never happened by chance. And just so you know, I don't know what brought you here. You may be here because you got caught up with some buddies. And you're like, oh, fine, if you're going, I'm going. It's in between ski trips. You may be here because you followed a girlfriend. You're like, she came, so I'm coming. You may come because you got like all caught up in the momentum of like a late night recruiting and you came and then you tried to play the COVID card, but they were like, send me a test. And you're like, oh, crap, didn't think you were going to say that. All right, I'll come. I don't know. You may think it was random. You may think it was by chance, but I'll tell you something. That's a God you've created. 
That's not true. That's not true. The true God has you in this room for a purpose. It was no accident. Do you see how that could change the way you live your life if you understand the true nature of who God is? And you can go through his characteristics and go deeper and explore more characteristics and all it will continue to do is give you confidence in this God, this true God. And we'll wrap up with this final point. The reason God put you here he tells us in verse 27, it's our third point. And the third point is this, you've got to know where God is. You've got to know God is. You've got to know who God is. You've got to know where God is. 27, it says that the reason he determined and allotted all the periods and boundaries in their dwelling place is that they should seek God. And then listen to this, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then this, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Where is God? Where is he? Paul says, he's so near. No, 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 no. Do you know what I've done, right? We go down that trail and then you create this God who won't be around you because of what you did. Do you know what I did on New Year's? Do you know what I want to do now at this conference? Do you know who I am? I'm a broken, beat up, dirty person. God does not want to be near me. That's some counterfeit God you're making up. The true God is very near. The true God is very near to you. How do you become near to him? Well, let me give you a father's advice to a son. This is King David speaking to his son, Solomon. And the advice he gives to his son is the advice I give to you. He says, in you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then get this, he says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. This is a promise I can make you with absolute certainty. Even Jeremiah 29, 13 backs this one up. It says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, search for me with all of your heart. One of the early church fathers said something that uh, it just resonates with this whole idea. Augustine, he says this, he says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Constant, trying to plug it in with things that don't feel, don't fit. They're never gonna fit. 
You'll always be restless until you fill that God-shaped vacuum, not with some counterfeit God, but with the true God. And you can begin to do that at this conference by using your energy, using your brain, seeking him, putting your effort towards trying to unearth and expose the true God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that you are the true God. That right now, even praying, I get to pray to the true God who is the God who listens, who has an ear towards us. Not the absent God, not the distant God, not the uninvolved God, but the very near God who's listening to this prayer. God, would you make this room a room of people who will fight, scratch, claw, tooth and nail, to seek out wholeheartedly who you truly are and would this be the beginning of it? Amen. SMC 2022, I pray that this would be the start of you discovering the true God. Let's all seek him for the next four days, but not just then. Let's seek him for 2022. Let's seek him for the rest of our lives.